Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. Please turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2 is page number 972. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you. It feels like it's been a long time since I've been up here. How are you doing? Everybody doing well? No? Okay, good. Uh, I'm the one who should be tired, not you. I've been here since, I don't know, what, 8? 8.30? Something like that. Uh, you guys should be doing good. Uh, yeah, I feel like it's been a while. It's been uh three Sundays since I've been up here, four Sundays since we've been in Galatians. I apologize for the break in our brand new study of Galatians. We never intended to take a break right at the very beginning of the study. It just kind of worked out that way between our vacation and some other scheduling things that occurred. So whatever, we're getting back into it now. Let me also take this, uh, take this opportunity to thank John and Isaac for preaching while I was away in the first service. I made the joke that I heard a lot of good things about John's message. And then I was just silent, and nobody laughed. And poor Isaac's sitting back there like, it's funny. It's a joke, right? No? So now he's insecure. So make sure you tell Isaac that you enjoyed it as well. Uh, I was thinking about this the last time I was up here. It was four Sundays ago, and I used that opportunity to preach about our dual citizenship as residents of both an earthly and a heavenly kingdom and about our responsibilities in light of each of those kingdoms. And all of this was, of course, in relation to the impending election. And, uh, well, here we are now, right, four weeks removed from that particular Sunday, and the deed is done. And I am happy to say to us all that if you voted in the state of Virginia, regardless of how you voted, regardless of the outcome and your thoughts thereof, you are completely absolved of any and all responsibility for whatever happens next, whether it's good or bad. If you're confused, let me explain. Uh, if you voted for Hillary Clinton, you helped her win the state of Virginia, but since she lost the overall election, you didn't help her really at all. So in that sense, you wasted your vote. If you voted for Donald Trump, you did not help him win the state of Virginia, which means you did not help him win the overall election. In that sense, you wasted your vote. And for all of you who voted for third-party candidates or wrote in a name, you obviously were okay with wasting your vote at the beginning, and that's why you voted the way you did. And so the way I see it then, this means that anyone who voted in the state of Virginia, regardless of who you voted for, you are completely now off the hook for whatever comes next, or you get no credit for whatever comes next. Good, bad, whatever happens, your conscience is clear. Now you can sleep soundly at night. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'll say this and I'll be done with this uh, little tirade. Um, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, the only other thing to say here is just to remind you of the exhortation I gave you four weeks ago, because that exhortation was true then, and it is true now. Our God is sovereign, and your responsibility now is to pray for the elected leaders that God has given us, because we know that whoever it was, we said this four weeks ago, would be given to us by God, and so lift up all of them, federal, state, local leaders, to him. All right, with that out of the way, let's read Galatians chapter 2 verses 11 to 21, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please look at verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we come... We thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study it together as a group of believers. And we pray that you will now take it and that your spirit will apply it to each of our hearts, convicting us of our own sin, uh, our tendencies to want to put up walls of separation where the gospel has torn them down, to treat people differently because of whatever categories or things that we look to or focus on. I pray, Father, that you will... Make it clear to us today and over the coming weeks and months as we continue to work through this book that we are one in Jesus, that he is our everything, our sufficiency, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, since it's been a while, uh, let's begin this morning by simply reviewing where we have been up to this point so that we're all back up to speed here in our study. After opening this letter, Paul very quickly gets to the point by saying that he is absolutely astonished that the Galatians have deserted Jesus in exchange for another gospel, not that there really is another gospel. He makes it very clear there in chapter 1 that anyone who came, comes proclaiming a gospel that is contrary to the one that he first proclaimed to them should spend eternity burning in hell. That is the intent of his language there in chapter 1. It's one of the most strongly worded statements in all the New Testament. And having gotten their attention and ours, Paul then begins to do something that he doesn't do in any of his other letters. He begins to work through a chronology of his early ministry. Remember this timeline that's up here behind me now? Uh, I'll just walk through it very briefly, just again, get us up to speed. After mentioning his pre-conversion life, uh, Paul talks briefly about his conversion there on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, mentioning how he saw and heard the Lord Jesus. After this, we know he spent some time in Damascus, and then he goes away to Arabia and then comes back to Damascus again before making his first visit to Jerusalem post-conversion. Now, this wasn't a very long visit, about 15 days, he tells us here in Galatians, uh, during which time he saw no one of significance except for the apostles and James, the Lord's brother. Afterwards, he goes back to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and all seems well for a little bit there. Now, at that point, the stories of Galatians and Acts diverge for a period. In Acts, Luke tells us about a second visit of Paul to Judea, and most likely Jerusalem, for the purpose of famine relief. 
Paul then returns to Antioch, eventually heads off with Barnabas on his first missionary journey to the province of Galatia. That's where he visits those four cities we saw several weeks ago, establishing churches in each as he goes. And then later, some time after he gets back, he heads off to Jerusalem for a third and very important visit. Now, why was that third visit so important? Well, as we take Acts 15 and we compare it to Galatians 1 and 2, it seems very probable that there were a group of Jews in Jerusalem, probably who had been a part of the Pharisee party, who had now claimed to have become believers in Jesus. But it appears that sometime after they made this claim of conversion, that they rethink their position and they turn away from the gospel of grace and begin advocating the necessity of Gentiles to be circumcised and keep the Old Testament law, plus accept Christ in order to truly be saved. So now it's a Jesus plus system, right? And this is a new gospel. This is a false gospel. And a number of these people apparently decide to become missionaries of this new and false gospel. And as we know in, from Acts chapter 15, they make it at least as far as Antioch with their message. When they arrived in Antioch, they very likely claimed to be representing the apostles in Jerusalem. Hey, you know, we're from Jerusalem. Peter has sent us, and he wants you to know that in order to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus, plus you have to keep the Old Testament law. So this probably caused a great deal of confusion amongst the believers. Furthermore, I personally think that it's very likely that either these false teachers themselves or at the very least their message makes it even further west to the Galatian cities where, following all this line of reasoning, where when it gets there, there are some believers in that area, some Jews in those cities who had claimed to accept Christ, but they were under a lot of persecution and antagonism for their faith. And when they hear this new gospel, they're like, that's the answer right there. That's what we need. If we, if we don't have to abandon the law, if we don't have to walk away from circumcision in our Jewish culture, we can, that'll solve all the problems. And so they accept this false gospel, thinking it will make their message more popular and palatable to the unbelieving Jews around them. And so this is what happens. Now, of course, there's, there's one big problem in all of this, and that's Paul. Here's Paul. He's claiming to be an apostle. He's claiming to have gotten his gospel directly from Jesus himself, and his gospel does not match the gospel that these people are proclaiming. In his gospel, you don't have to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved. So for them to be able to preach this new gospel, they have to get rid of Paul, so to speak. They have to discredit Paul so that they can discredit his message as well, and to do this, it seems that they tried to pit Paul against the Jerusalem apostles. You know, this new gospel has come from Peter, and Peter we know is a real apostle. Paul, he's not a real apostle, so you can ignore his message. We're telling you the new truth. That seems to be what was going on, and, and that's where we're at. That's the, the working premise that we have put together up to this point about the situation here in the book of Galatians based on the chronology, based on what we see in the book of Acts, based on context and clues in both of those books, putting all of that together, that's where we have come. So if I stop and reflect on that for a moment, what that means then is that from chapter 1, verse 11, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10, Paul has pretty much done nothing but defend himself. 
Specifically, he has been attempting to defend the independence and the authority of his apostleship, and then by extension, the independence and the authority of his gospel as well from the attacks of these false teachers. And it's put him in a really weird place here in this letter, because on the one hand, he needs to distance himself from the Jerusalem crew, right? He's like, hey, look, I know they're apostles. I know but I'm not, I didn't get my authority from them. I've barely seen them. I've only gone there a couple of times. I haven't had a lot of FaceTime with them, and my, my message is not derived from them. So you see him purposely trying to, to separate himself as he goes. At the same time, though, he also wants to prove or show that his message and their message is the same, that there's not a division or any kind of a break between their gospel and his gospel. And so you see him in this weird kind of back and forth task. That's what's going on really throughout the first chapter and a half of Galatians. But I want you to note that up to this point in the letter, Paul really hasn't done any kind of teaching whatsoever, has he? I mean, he's just been telling a story, which is why, in case you're wondering, we've been able to go through a chapter and a half of one of Paul's letters in about five Sundays, right? If it was straight up teaching, we'd have been here a lot longer and not made it very far at all. But because it's story, we've been able to move through it pretty quick, uh, quickly. Remember, the attack that he is under is both on him personally and on his message. And so he begins his letter by defending himself so that he can defend his message. In a sense, what he needs to do is establish his credibility as an apostle of Jesus Christ so that he can really then focus in on the details of the theology of his opponents. And this is the turning point that we find ourselves at right now. Um, I view this next section that I read to you this morning here in chapter 2 as being a transition of sorts, moving from his personal defense now over to his theological defense. If you look at verse 11, right off the bat, you notice that it's clearly different than what comes before it. I mean, before verse 11, you see Paul doing this like 10,000-foot flyby of the first you know, years of his ministry. It's, hey, I was here, then I went here, then I went here, and there's not a lot of details given. It's moving really fast through the storyline. He never really stops and focuses in. But then all of a sudden you come to verse 11, and Paul slows way down and focuses in on one particular incident that occurred between himself and Peter. Now, you might be wondering, well, why would Paul all of a sudden just slow down and focus in on this one story? Well, if you are wondering that, then that is a sign without any attempt to puff you up that you're a good Bible student, because whenever you see that kind of a stark change occur in the text, it's normally a clue that something important is happening. And in this particular case here, sure enough, I think this change in focus and direction is very significant. And so what we're going to do today is we are going to begin looking at this incident. We both need to understand what is happening here and then why Paul now draws our attention to it as he begins to shift from his personal defense over to his theological defense. So let's just begin by noting the setting. Paul begins here in verse 11 by referencing a visit by Peter, or Cephas, that's his Aramaic name, a visit by Peter to Antioch. Now, since it's been a while since we've uh, been comparing the book of Galatians to the book of Acts, you probably have forgotten a little bit about Antioch. First, just remember that there are two main cities called Antioch in the New Testament. 
The first one is often referred to as Pisidian Antioch. It's in the province of Galatia. This is one of the cities Paul visited on his first missionary journey, and it's one of the cities to which he is writing here in this letter. The other is referred to as Syrian Antioch, or more normally, just Antioch. If you see an Antioch referenced in the New Testament, it's probably the second one here. This was a major port town here on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, and it's the second Antioch that serves as like Paul's base of operations, particularly during the early years of his ministry. This is where he and Barnabas were kind of like the teaching pastors of the church for a time. And this is the place where Luke tells us in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, that believers were first called Christians. So imagine being a part of that church back then. That would have been pretty cool. Well, you know, this is where in Paul's story, Peter has come for a visit here to Antioch. And we, we have no idea of when this visit occurred. No idea at all of where this fits in the timeline that Paul has presented to us. The only clue we might have is in Acts chapter 12, if you look there, which you don't have to turn, but you can look later. At the beginning of Acts 12, Herod has killed James, the son of Zebedee, brother of John. He's the first of the apostles to be martyred. He's the first of the 11 to die. And this has made the Jews in that area there in Jerusalem so happy that Herod thinks, man, if killing James was good, killing Peter too would be even better. And so he's arrested Peter and put Peter in prison. So here we find Peter in a story that's fairly well known. Peter is asleep in prison. He's chained to two guards, one on his right, one on his left. He's fast asleep. And in the middle of the night, an angel appears, taps him on his side and says, get up. So as Peter gets up, his chains fall off. He says, get dressed. Peter gets dressed. He says, follow me. Peter follows him as they're walking out of the prison. Doors are opening. Gates are opening all on their own. Peter, this entire time, by the way, thinks he's having a vision. He doesn't know it's real until he gets out into the street, and all of a sudden the angel disappears, and he's like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, that's a pleasant surprise. He's, he's now free. And after a funny little incident that occurs at a house nearby where a, a group of believers were gathered praying for, for Peter, Luke tells us in verse 17 of Acts 12 that Peter decides, eh, I should probably leave town. You know, I just got arrested for the purpose of being put to death. Maybe it's time for a vacation. Now, we don't know where Peter goes. Could he have gone to Antioch? Sure. Could he have gone to Paris? Maybe. Could he have gone to Beijing? I don't know. You know, you can pick where you want. We don't have any clue to tell us one direction or other where he went, but some people think that may be when this is happening. Thankfully, it doesn't really matter where this fits in the timeline or even on the timeline that I've given you at all. Uh, the events of what occurs here in the story are, uh, uh, the timing of the events, excuse me, are irrelevant to why it's being presented. When Peter comes to Antioch, Paul tells us, a confrontation occurs between the two of them. And the way this is worded here, I opposed him to his face, indicates a very sharp and public confrontation. He's like, why would he confront him publicly, right? Like, if you have something with problem with a person, don't you do that privately? Well, yes, but generally I would say if someone has done a major public thing, it might take a major public confrontation, and this is certainly the case in this particular incident. In addition, this phrase, because he stood condemned, is extremely strong. It's not just because uh, he did something he shouldn't have done or because he made a mistake. It's because you stand condemned by God, Peter. That's the idea here. So imagine if on a Sunday morning, right, I call someone out. I'm like, hey, Matt, I'm going to publicly rebuke you because God himself is condemning you. That's a big deal, is it not? 
That'd be a very big deal if we did that on a particular Sunday morning. And so, beginning in verse 12 here, Paul begins to explain exactly what had occurred that led to such a sharp public rebuke. Apparently, he says, at least for the time that Peter's in Antioch, he had become accustomed to eating with Gentiles, most likely Gentile believers, Gentiles who were a part of the church there in Antioch is what I think he's referring to here. Now, to you and I, that statement in and of itself isn't a big deal, right? I think most of us would probably be willing to eat with just about anyone that came and asked us to eat, particularly if they're buying, right? If you want to buy me a meal, I'm in, unless it's seafood, but, but that's not how the Jews operated. First of all, Jews did not associate themselves with Gentiles. They viewed them as being dogs, regularly referred to them that way. And so if you could avoid interacting with a Gentile at all, you did so. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, if you got a Jew who's walking down the street, particularly in a city like Antioch, which is a Gentile city, if they're walking down the street, they won't be polite or say hello or something like that. But in this culture, to share a meal with someone is to enter into a level of relationship and welcome and approval and confirmation that you would never see occur between a Jew and a Gentile. A Jew is never going to invite a Gentile into their home to eat. And if a Jew was invited into a Gentile's home to eat, it'd be no sir, no thank you, not interested. Good Jews would never do this. Second, eating with Gentiles would generally be a problem anyway, simply due to the strict Old Testament dietary laws that the Jews followed. Now, if you're not familiar with all the dietary laws of the Jews, if you've not spent time reading in like Leviticus, for example. Here is a very simple explanation. Basically, there are six restricted categories of food. Number one, pretty much all four-footed animals except for sheep, goats, cattle, and a few kind of deer are prohibited. The worst of the worst in this category is pigs. Don't eat pork, no bacon, nothing like that. That's the worst of the worst in category one. Two, no shellfish or mollusks. Pretty much all other seafood was fine outside of that. Number three, birds of prey, buzzards, eagles, vultures, things like that. Don't eat those. Other birds are fine. Uh, number four, most insects. And now I've lost a few of you on that one. <laughs> most insects are not okay. Uh, you can eat crickets and locusts and grasshoppers. That's fine. Number five, swarming land creatures like snakes and lizards and chameleons and weasels, anything like that. Don't eat those. And then number six, dead animals. Now, obviously, you got to kill an animal to eat it, so they're not talking about that. They're saying if you're out in the woods, you're out in the field, and you find a dead animal, don't eat it. That rule still applies, okay? Just <laughs> highly recommend you continue to follow that one. You can change the others, but stick with that one. Um, in addition to these six categories, Jews couldn't eat uh, blood. They couldn't eat fat. Uh, and generally speaking, they would never get food from Gentile sources because on the one hand, they couldn't confirm that the food had been properly tithed in accordance with the Old Testament law. And number two, they couldn't confirm that the food hadn't been offered or dedicated to idols, which would have been a pretty common practice in the Gentile world of that day. And so these food laws, all of these restrictions make, you know, kind of like are one point of a trifecta of, of cultural things that sort of delineated Jews from Gentiles. Number one was circumcision. Number two was Sabbath observance. And number three was these dietary laws. If you wanted to know what set Jews apart from the Gentiles in their culture, there you go. Those three things would generally uh, cover most of it and separate them from the dogs around them. And so for Peter to have been eating with the Gentiles here in Antioch, <laughs> we read that and we don't think much of it, but I'm telling you, 
This goes against hundreds and hundreds of years of Jewish culture and religious belief. Not only is he sharing a meal with these dogs, but since he's in Gentile territory eating with Gentiles, he is very likely also violating one or more of those prohibited categories that I showed you just a moment ago. And if I could just go off on a quick little side rabbit trail for a second, this is a big, big change from the Peter we meet in Acts chapter 10. If you remember in that story, here's Peter right up on a rooftop during the hour of prayer, and he falls into a trance. He has a vision. And during the vision, he sees a sheet lowered from heaven, and in the sheet are all manners of animals, snakes, and birds, Luke tells us. And so he sees this sheet, and he hears a voice that says, rise, kill, and eat. And what's Peter's response to God? No. <laughs> he did like, no, God, I'm not. Nothing common or unclean has ever passed these lips. I will not do it. And the voice responds back to him what God calls clean. No man should call common. And then the sheet's lifted up. This happens three times, by the way, there in Acts 10. And he wakes up, and he's like, what? <laughs> what was that all about? And next thing you know... There's a knock at the door, and there are men there from a Gentile named Cornelius who want Peter to come and preach the gospel to Cornelius. He does so. Cornelius is saved, and the gospel enters the Gentile world. In Acts 10, nothing unclean's ever passed my lips. Here in Galatians 2, he's in Antioch eating with the Gentiles. So there's been a big change in Peter's life. Now he's okay with it. Now, back to the story. Something changes now in the situation. Paul tells us here that certain men, we don't know who, just certain men came from James. Now, depending on which side of Acts chapter 12, verse 2 this falls on, it could mean different things. In Acts 12, 2, James the apostle is killed. So if it's before Acts 2, it could be James the brother of John. If it's after Acts 12, I mean, not Acts 2, Acts 12, it could, it's probably James the brother of Jesus. Either way, some group comes to see Peter from Jerusalem. And since they're coming from James, my assumption is that these are believing Jews, okay? These are men who are believers, fellow Christians, probably just coming now for this visit to see Peter. And we don't know if this visiting group had an issue with what Peter was doing, eating with the Gentiles or not. Nothing is said about their view of what he's doing. But there's something about their arrival that causes Peter to now fear the circumcision party. Now you need to be really specific here in the text because these are two different groups of people. Do not confuse the men from James with the circumcision party. Different groups altogether. The circumcision party here is most likely a reference to the unbelieving Jews that were already living there in Antioch. So this is a town that has a Jewish population. Some of these Jews are unbelievers. Paul is referring to them here as the circumcision party. So these are people who still think in order to be made right with God, you've got to follow the Old Testament law. Now, I wish I could tell you what it was about the arrival of the men from James that caused Peter all of a sudden to now fear the unbelieving Jews in his community. But I, I can't. He wasn't afraid of them before the men from James came. Now he is. And so regardless of the reason, what does he do? Well, Paul says here, he draws back and separates himself from the Gentiles, from all of them, believing and unbelieving. It's because this is a church in a Gentile city. 
It's made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles all mingling together. And he now separates himself from half the church, not because they're doing anything wrong, not because him eating with them is wrong. He separates himself simply because they're Gentiles, simply because they're uncircumcised and they do not keep the Old Testament law. And not only does he separate himself from them, but because he is clearly viewed as a leader in Christianity, right? He's an apostle. He's a representative of Jesus himself. Paul tells us that the rest of the Jews, and I'm, he means by this specifically the believing Jews who are a part of that church there, the rest of the believing Jews who are a part of that church separate themselves from their Gentile brothers as well, even Barnabas. Barnabas. Paul's friend, ministry partner. He even goes with Peter and the rest of the group. It's probably the first church split we're reading about right now. Paul accuses them all then of being hypocrites. And you know what a hypocrite is, right? A hypocrite is someone who says one thing and does another. Now, in most spheres of life, being a hypocrite would be recognized by us as being bad, right? Nobody wants to be accused of being a hypocrite. Uh, we were in Williamsburg yesterday, and we're driving down Richmond Road uh, toward Old Town. And as we get to a particular intersection, there's this young guy off on the corner, and he's holding up these signs like, don't eat animals, eating animals is cruel, like that kind of thing. Now, I could have stopped and gotten out of my car and picked up a sign with him and stood out there on the street corner, like, don't eat animals, eating animals is, is bad, you're cruel if you eat animals but I would be doing that on a full stomach of chicken Alfredo that I had just finished at Olive Garden. That would be hypocritical, right? Would it not? I mean, I'd be saying one thing while having done another. Uh, we get that hypocrisy in that kind of area is bad. But when we're talking about theological issues, saying that hypocrisy is bad, particularly in this situation here, it's not quite strong enough. You see, the hypocrisy that Peter and Barnabas and the rest of the Jewish believers in this church are guilty of here doesn't simply have to do with like an issue of practical Christian living. It has to do with the gospel itself. Now, I'm not going to develop this out fully this morning. We're going to come back to this next week. But I just want you to read now with me verse 14 to see where Paul is about to take this. Okay, look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct, he's talking about actions, right? You see that actions, it's a decision they've made, a practical decision, their conduct. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, and stop there and think about that comment for a moment. Their actions don't match their beliefs. Got that? Paul uh, has preached a particular gospel. Peter has preached a particular gospel. And in both of their gospels, the gospel they preach makes it very clear both how you're made right with God and who can be made right with God. On the how front, it makes it very clear that you are never made right with God through observance of the law or through any of your own works, but you are made right with God through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. On the who front, they have made it very clear that salvation is not just being offered to cultural and national Israel. It is being offered to all mankind, Jew 
and Gentile alike. Both the how and the who are inherently bound up in the gospel that both Peter and Paul have preached. And so, to ignore the how or to deny the who is not just a minor issue, it is effectively a denial of the gospel itself. Think about that. To ignore the how, to deny the who, is in effect a denial of the gospel itself. And when Paul sees all of these believers, particularly leaders like Peter and Barnabas, ignoring the how and denying the who, he says to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you now force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, you're a Jew. You were born a Jew, but you haven't been living like a Jew. You've been living like a Gentile, and he's not saying that in a negative way to him. He's just recognizing the reality of their situation. But now, Peter, all of a sudden, you're going to stop doing that, and you're going to try to make the Gentiles live like the very thing you're not? What? Why? Well, you'll have to wait until next Sunday to find out why, okay? Because this is where we're going to pause for this week. But even though we're stopping here, I didn't know that would get such a reaction. Uh, Even though we're stopping here, I'm guessing that the reason Paul has focused in on this one incident is now becoming pretty clear, at least I hope it is, because there's a lot of overlap between this incident that occurs in Antioch and the overall situation that's occurring in Galatia. In both cases, as we'll see in more detail next week, the gospel itself is under attack. In both cases. Now, In the case of Peter and Barnabas and the rest of the believing Jews there in Antioch, their attack of the gospel is unintentional. I don't for a minute think Paul is suggesting or that we should read that as Peter is doing this, as they're making these decisions, pulling away from the Gentile crowd, that they're like, well, we're giving up on Christ. (laughs) I I, I just think they're reacting, not thinking through their decision and the ramifications of it fully. Certainly, you have been guilty of that as well, as have I. Uh, Whereas in Galatia, the false teachers are clearly intentionally trying to attack the gospel. And yet, even though one is unintentional, one is intentional, the net result is the same. And while I certainly hope, I wouldn't expect that there's anybody in this room who would ever intentionally attack the gospel of grace by your actions, words, or anything else, I would be shocked to find a single one of us in here, maybe outside of the youngest of children, who hasn't unintentionally attacked the gospel of grace by your actions in the past. And that's starting with me. All of us have no doubt done things, made decisions, reacted in certain ways, and by doing so have questioned the very things that you see Peter and Barnabas and the Jews in Antioch questioning. You know, maybe, maybe we've attacked the how component of salvation. You know, maybe we've taken an issue of Christian liberty or church practice and we have somehow elevated that up to the same status of the gospel. Well, uh, so-and-so drinks. People who drink can't be, the, can't be Christians. You see what you just did right there? You may not have meant to, but you just said abstinence or the lack thereof is on equal par with the gospel. Well, that church, they have a certain music style, and churches who have that kind of music style clearly don't know Jesus. Uh, have you ever heard these kinds of things? I have. Have you ever thought these kinds of things? I have. 
Maybe not in those two specific examples, but things like that, where we take secondary issues and we raise them up, put them on par with the gospel in terms of how we know whether or not someone's a believer or not. What did Jesus say? Maybe you can help me remember. How did he think we would know that other people were his followers? Oh, it was by love. We love one another. I think that's what he said somewhere. John 13, 34, 35. Or maybe we haven't attacked the how component. Maybe we've just attacked the who part, right? Uh, I think you see this racially and socially within many churches. We have black churches and white churches, rich churches and poor churches. You know, if those differences are just naturally caused by the makeup of the community a church is in, then that's fine. It's just going to be, you know, the church is in a particular city and the city is just one particular way. You're going to expect to see that, right? Your church should reflect its culture. But if those uh, differences are anything outside of that, then we've got a problem. You know, I grew up in the South, I grew up in Eastern North Carolina, and I grew up in very racist churches, very racist. You know, if you were a white person, you would never go to a black church, ever. And if a black person ever showed up at our church, no one would be like, get out, but you would not be welcomed, and you would probably never return. Um, I hope you understand that that kind of mindset is an attack on the gospel. It is a denial of the who that Jesus died for and should not be tolerated amongst Christians. I think you also see this theologically within many churches, and in many believers as well. You know, churches will have, you know, and believers alike will have particular views about this or that point of secondary theology. And so they take that, and that's fine. They have these views, but then all of a sudden they make that view a litmus test about whether or not they're going to fellowship with or be kind to or even recognize the salvation of other people. I've seen this with, like, baptism growing up in the churches I grew up in where, you know, the mode of baptism your church chooses somehow says something about whether or not you're a follower of Christ. Well, you only sprinkle, so we're sorry, you're going to hell. Uh, you know, no one ever said that, but that was how it was treated or viewed. I've seen this with issues of like how people view the work of the Spirit. Well, because you think this and you think, you know, that person can't be this, that person can't be that. I've seen it on both ends of the, uh, of the spectrum. And I'm telling you folks, this is not right. These are secondary issues of theology. They are not right. I'm all for having strong beliefs on whatever secondary things you believe. I've said before, and I'll say it again today, I'm not a fan of stupid Christians. And what I mean by that is people who believe things but don't know why they believe them. If you believe something, believe it. Know why. Know where you could defend that in Scripture. Understand it. Hold it strongly. But look, I'm not willing to separate from you or go to battle with you over a secondary issue. I'm willing to be wrong on those secondary things. I might be wrong. You might be wrong. And we may not know until heaven. But I am not willing to be wrong about the gospel. And I have no desire to unintentionally attack its truth by ignoring the how or by denying the who. And I would urge you this morning to think carefully about these things to examine your own heart? Are there areas in your life where you are unintentionally, I'm not, a, I'm not claiming that you're doing it purposefully, that you are unintentionally attacking the truth of the gospel by any of these things I have given examples of? If so, then I encourage you to repent of those things and to live your life consistently with the gospel you say you believe. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, just reminded again this morning that Jesus is our everything. And it is so easy for us to be like Peter, to be like Barnabas, to be like the, the rest of the Jews there, and to be unintentionally led astray by who knows what, issues, 
responses of people, whatever the case may be, and to, in our actions, deny the very gospel we say we believe. Help us to never add anything to it, the how component. May we always remember that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone, and we are all sinners. We are all weak. We will all make mistakes, and we want to show others the same grace that we have been shown in Christ. Help us to never deny the who component, to, to begin to elevate or, or separate from people simply based on secondary issues like their, the color of their skin or issues of theology even that Lord, we need your grace. Your church is designed by your divine plan to be a melting pot of sinners who have one thing and one thing only in common in the end, and that is the finished work of Christ. And so it's in that we celebrate this morning, in that we find our union, and in that name we pray, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.